All right, good morning, everybody. I don't know if you can hear me if you're out in the hallways, but if you're in the halls and the, the new ceiling speakers are working, uh, we are going to begin our Sunday school class this morning. So come on in. Great. Good to know they're out there working. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into our, our material for today. Father, we come before you um, eager to better understand your word. Lord, you tell us, blessed is the one, uh, not the one who boasts in his riches or um, the one who boasts in his strength, but the one who boasts should boast in this, that we know and understand you, that you are the Lord. And so, God, we want to know you. We want to understand your character, your nature, and your works. So give us a teachable mind this morning. For those of us who are tired or distracted, I pray that you would give us a spirit of alertness and, and focus and I pray that you would guide me in my words that I would rightly represent you in your truth. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, in our class on doctrine, we're approaching this class systematically. And we've been dealing with uh, the doctrine of God, which is theology proper. And today, within that <clears throat> sort of overarching category, we're going to be addressing two topics that at first glance to you might not seem related, but they actually go hand in hand, and that is creation and providence. And this is part of our study on theology proper. Uh, just a bit of review, um, the first week we studied the existence of God. Um, Scott Huffman reminded us that God is knowable, truly, yet he is incomprehensible. We cannot know him exhaustively. And it's important that we maintain both of those. Um, we also studied the nature and attributes of God. Kerry Wilson reminded us that God is spirit, and he gave us a great survey of both the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. Uh, not that God is made up of parts, but that he is completely holy, completely loving, completely um, wise, and there are some of those attributes we can share with God. We can grow to be like him, but there's other things about God that we do not share. Um, things, ways in which we cannot be like him. So Kerry Wilson did a great job um, explaining to us the nature and attributes of God. And then last week, um, Stephen Parkin, uh, Pastor Stephen as we can call him now, uh, gave us a great overview of the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is Trinity. And he affirmed uh, three specific truths that we sort of uh, uh, summarize as we study scripture, and that is plurality, unity, and equality. Plurality, that God is three persons. Unity, that God is one in his essence. He's one being. I thought, I thought Stephen put it uh, very clearly when he said God is, is one what and three who's. And those three persons are completely equal. There is not a hierarchy in terms of godness. Um, they are equal. So those three guardrails sort of keep us within biblical orthodoxy, plurality, unity, and equality. So those are sort of the three, a review of the last uh, three weeks as we've studied the doctrine of God, theology proper. And today we're going to do creation and providence. So creation is that God is the maker of all things. And we all know how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is not just the starting point for the Bible. It's not just the, the opening words, you know, the once upon a time, or it was a dark and stormy night, you know, in the beginning God created. It's not just a literary device. This is really the starting point for everything we believe, that God is the starting point. He is the maker of all things. And in terms of creation, there's much we could say. There's a lot of different uh, discussion we could have, but I want to pull out a couple particular 
um, details that we need to keep in mind. First of all, we understand that creation is ex nihilo. That's a, a Latin phrase that means out of nothing. God created the world out of nothing. John 1.3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. Um, we have many people in our church, several people in our church who are artists, who work with various mediums. Um, and I've got to see some of your artwork, um, some of those types of things, which is great. But here's the amazing thing. God is a great artist, but unlike any human artist, he didn't use pre-existing material. He didn't use a photograph to model his sketch based off of. Uh, he didn't use necessarily clay, you know, existing matter to form everything that exists. Um, God didn't take paint, mix it together, and, and buy a brush. He simply created it out of nothing. Um, Genesis 1 tells us God created the heavens and the earth, and that's really intended to be a comprehensive description of everything. The heavens and the earth. That's the material world, the universe, and even includes the spiritual realm. Uh, those things that we would say from, in a figure of speech inhabit the heavens. Um, God created those. It includes time and space. God made all of it. There is not anything that exists in the creation that God made out of something that pre-existed the creation. God made all of it. God made all of it. And we say, how can this be? How do you make something out of nothing? Some people will argue this point, um, and it becomes somewhat of a philosophical debate. But I love what J.I. Packer writes. He says, to say that he created out of nothing is to confess the mystery, not explain it. And I think he nails it. Uh, creation out of nothing is simply a divine miracle. Uh, we really have to understand there's really two options. Either the material world is eternal, or someone else is and produced what we see. So if God didn't make the universe out of nothing, if, if there was pre-existing matter, if there was stuff that predated the created universe that God used, then that stuff itself must be eternal. And so you get into a divine, you start worshiping the matter itself rather than the one who made it. And we don't want to go there. You know, we tend to struggle with believing things about God like creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, because we know that we couldn't do such a thing. It doesn't make sense to us. You can't make something out of nothing. And I would say, yes, you can't if you're a human, but God can. That's part of what makes him God. He alone can create out of nothing. And so we bear his image. There's many uh, who are creative, and we make things, we build things, but our works of creation are not like God's works of creation. Even procreation with bringing new humans into existence. We're working with pre-existing DNA, uh, pre-existing material. And God allows us to participate in this sort of ongoing work of creation, which is amazing. But that first act of creation, what we see in Genesis, was creation out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo. God can do that. Secondly, it was creation by fiat. And that's another word we don't use very often. I'm not talking about the little car um, a little Italian-made deal. Uh, by fiat means out of, by divine command. God spoke the world into existence. We see this refrain all throughout Genesis 1. God said, and there was. It's like this beautiful rhythm that happens throughout this description of what God did in creating the world. He, he used his word to create all things. Psalm 33.6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. 
and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Psalm 33.9 says, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Here's the amazing thing about God's word. God's word has the power to command that which does not yet exist and call it into being. Things that don't even exist have to obey God when he tells them to start existing. That just shows the divine power of our God. He created by speaking. Creation by fiat. So it's a creation out of nothing, and God creates by the power of his word. But we also need to understand creation to be an act of the triune God. God the Father is the primary agent who initiates the act of creation. God the Son carries out the plans and directions of the Father. And God the Spirit is described in Scripture as filling and completing and giving life to the creation. We see this in John 1 verse 3. It says, all things were made through him. And he's speaking of Jesus, the incarnate word. This word by which God called the heavens and the earth into being is a person. It's Jesus. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. It's a comprehensive statement. Colossians 1.16 says the same thing. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, referring to the spiritual realm, the things we can't see. All things were created through him and for him. We speak of Jesus as being the divine agent of creation. Hebrews 1.2 says that in these last days, he, referring to God, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So it's very clear that this act of creation is an act of the triune God. We see the Spirit's involvement as well. In Genesis 1 verse 2, it says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And that doesn't just mean that he was there hanging out, waiting to see what happened next. That really is describing the involvement of the Holy Spirit in that act of creation. Job 33 verse 4 says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And really in Hebrew, the word for breath and spirit, ruach, it's the same word. The Spirit of God is the breath of God. The breath of God is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Almighty, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Psalm 104 verse 30 says, When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So it's an act of the triune God, this work of creation, which is an amazing thing. So what is God's relationship to the creation? This is important. We need to understand that creation, everything that God has made, is distinct from God, yet dependent on God. I'm going to say that again because it's really, really important we get this. The creation is distinct from God, yet dependent on God. We can sort of flesh that out in a few ways. Um, we, we need to acknowledge the creation is not all there is. Creation is distinct from God and God exists. If you were to sort of you know, imagine a, a diagram, and Wayne Grudem sort of diagrams this out in his systematic theology. If you have a circle of everything that exists and it has material world in the middle with no category for God, uh, that, that's a materialistic view of the universe. It says the creation is all there is. And that's the mindset most people in our day and age are, are operating with is that the created world, materialism, is all that exists. We reject that. There is a creation, and it is distinct from God, so we reject materialism. But we also need to say that creation does not exist apart from God. We should not think, again, if you're going to sort of diagram this in your brain, 
that there's a circle called God and a circle called creation, and they both kind of exist on parallel tracks, um, and that creation is separate from God um, in, in, the sex, in, in the sense that it exists apart from God. That's really an idea of dualism, that there's God and that there's everything else and there's no connection there. Um, that is false. We reject that idea. We also reject the idea that creation is part of God or, or that or that. God is the creation. The creation is God. Um, when people start referring to everything as being divine, that there's no distinction between God and creation, um, that's a pantheistic view. No, creation is distinct from God. It's distinct. So we reject pantheism. But we also reject deism, the idea that there's a God and there's a creation and God made the world, but now God has no involvement in his creation. That's sort of a deistic view. Uh, the, the old scholars used to define it as, you know, God is not just some divine watchmaker. So I have like an $8 watch here that I'm wearing today. Somebody made this, but they're not involved with it today. Whatever factory in China there was that built this, um, they're not making this thing run. They're not, you know, making sure that it keeps time. I program it, I use it, but uh, God, God's relationship to creation is not one of being a divine watchmaker where he sets everything up, winds it up, programs it, programs it, and then sort of sends it off to do its thing and has no more hands-on involvement. That's a deistic view. Creation is distinct from God, but creation is dependent on God. And that is why I'm going to switch to this next um, topic of providence. That's why creation and providence go hand in hand, because providence is the word we use to describe God's ongoing involvement in his creation. God upholds and governs his creation. If I can again quote J.I. Packer, um, I love his little book, Concise Theology, because it's concise, and he just distills things down so excellently, and he describes providence this way. He says, if creation was a unique exercise of divine energy causing the world to be, and it was, that's a great description of creation, providence is a continued exercise of that same energy whereby the creator, according to his own will, keeps all creatures in being, involves himself in all events, and directs all things to their appointed end. It's hard to say it more concisely than that. Um, other people do uh, um, also come up with other definitions. I also like the Westminster Shorter Catechism which says God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Um, MacArthur and Mayhew in their systematic theology write that divine providence is God's preserving his creation, operating in every event in the world, and directing all things in the universe to his appointed end for them. Um, and I have some other definitions, but I'm going to kind of move on because there's a lot to cover here. Um, Louis Burkhoff and his systematic theology just shows us sort of the biblical basis for this belief in providence. And we don't have time to look at all of these verses. And if you're taking notes this morning and going, I can't write all those down, um, send me an email. I can send, it to, send all of this to you this week. But um, Burkhoff points out that the Bible clearly teaches God's providential control in a number of areas um, over the universe at large, the big picture, general providence, um, over the physical world, you know, created matter. Over the brute creation, that means even things like the animals. God exercises his providential control over the affairs of nations, over man's birth and lot in life, over the outward successes and failures of men's lives, 
over things seemingly accidental or insignificant, even things like the number of hairs on your head. Um, God exercises providential control over all of that. He exercises his control in the protection of the righteous, in supplying the wants or the needs of God's people, in giving answers to prayer, in the exposure and punishment of the wicked. And we could go on and on and on because there is nothing in which God is not exercising providential control. Um, This providential control is oftentimes called sovereignty. Uh, We use that word often, but it is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. It's everything. And and oftentimes people will use these words providence and sovereignty somewhat interchangeably. And that's not wrong because they they are very much related. But how can we understand maybe the different flavor that both of these words carry? I think you can understand it this way. Sovereignty is really an expression of God's power. A king is sovereign. He has authority. He has the power to do whatever he wants to do. So sovereignty is really an expression of God's power. So when we learned about the attributes of God and learned that God is omnipotent, it's the expression of that power that we call sovereignty. Um, God has the power to do whatever he sees fit to accomplish all his will. He has the authority and the right and the ability to do it. So if sovereignty is the expression of his power, providence implies purpose. It's the goal, the end, the, the intent to which God is exercising that sovereign power. So sovereignty is about his power. Providence implies his purpose and even the process by which he brings that plan to fruition. So we speak often of a God who is sovereign, and that is true. And he exercises his divine power, his sovereign power over all things um, for a purpose. It's guided by his wisdom and his goodness and his plan, his will, his desire. And that, when we sort of use the word providence, we're trying to encapsulate all of that. And this doctrine is seen all over Scripture. There's three aspects of divine providence. And I think oftentimes we talk about sovereignty or providence at somewhat of a superficial level. So to understand these three aspects of providence is helpful. And some of these are words that are not found directly in Scripture. Don't let that bother you, because again, the word Trinity is not found in the Scripture either. But that's a word that helps us summarize what the Bible teaches about God. So three aspects of divine providence. Preservation would be the first. Concurrence, and then governance. We'll take just a moment to walk through these. Preservation. Here's the biblical basis for this. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So again, the God who created the world now sustains it and preserves it. He literally holds it together. And scientists for ages have studied what is it that keeps everything from flying apart. And they always find an answer, but then that answer brings up one more question that's underneath that answer. And then they'll find the answer to that and discover two more questions underneath the answer they just discovered. If you get all the way down to it at the end, it's God. It's God who holds everything together. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance, again, speaking of Christ, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All that would have to happen for this universe to disintegrate and melt, to explode in every direction, would be for God to stop holding it together. This is the exercise of providence. This is God's continued involvement in his creation, holding it together. This is the idea of preservation. Job 34, 14 Job meditates on this. He says, If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, 
all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So part of this idea of providence is God's divine preservation. He holds everything together. He sustains life and gravity and, and the orbit of the earth and, and the, the rotation of the moon and the tides and photosynthesis and the seasons and the days and the nights, all of it. He's holding all of it together. It's God. So the second idea is concurrence. And, and probably this idea of preservation is familiar to you because many of you have read your Bibles. You've seen these verses. But what about concurrence? This might be a new thought for some of you. And I would commend you to do some more study on this. We don't have time to give. I mean, this could be a whole lesson in and of itself. What is concurrence? Again, this is not in the Bible, but just like the word Trinity, it summarizes what we see unfolding in Scripture. Um, again, MacArthur and Mayhew define concurrence as God's operation with created things. So think about concurrence, even breaking that word apart. Or breaking that word apart. Con means, means with. And you think of current as a river or a stream. You have these streams flowing together, working together. So this is God's operation with created things, causing them, whether acting directly or ordaining them through secondary causes, through their properties to act. And that might sound a little philosophical or jumbled, but every one of those words is important. That God works with created things, and sometimes he does this directly. Sometimes God literally makes something happen directly. But sometimes he ordains things through secondary causes. But he does this through the natural properties of things. Um, so the reason the grass is growing outside right now is ultimately... God. He's holding it together, and this is how he designed it. But it's not as if God has to directly act to make that grass grow. There's natural properties to that grass. The process of photosynthesis. Um, there's water that's falling. There's sun that's now beating down on the blades of grass. And there's soil that's providing nutrients. And some of these processes are things that God has put in place. And yes, he's the one who keeps them going. But he doesn't have to directly intervene in order to cause the grass to grow. And it's maybe more simple to think about it in terms of natural processes like grass. It gets more complicated when we think about creatures who make decisions, and we'll get there in a moment. Wayne Grudem des describes concurrence as this. God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. This is the idea of concurrence. You say, okay, so where is this in the Bible? Um, go ahead and turn to Genesis 45, <clears throat> and I think we'll see this. The most, I think, classic and extended, really, teaching on God's providence is what we find in the life of Joseph. Read the story from front to back. Meditate on how everything works together. Consider God's fingerprints from the very first time we meet Joseph until he dies. And if you can just live in these several chapters and embrace everything it says about God and man, You'll have a good understanding of providence. This is really a beautiful story. And we know that at the end of this story, after Joseph has been, you know, he's been the favorite by his dad. He got the special coat. His brothers resented him. They were going to kill him, but changed their mind and decided, let's just beat him up and sell him into slavery instead. Then we don't have to live with the guilt of having his blood on our hands. Let somebody else ruin his life. So they sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He's sold to the captain of the guard, Potiphar. Starts rising to the top. But then he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Um, he ends up in prison. 
He ends up forgotten in prison, even by people who had said that they put in a good word for him because he interpreted their dreams. But then he is brought out and interprets Pharaoh's dream and is promoted to be the prime minister of all of Egypt. God allows him to see there's going to be this massive famine. Joseph wisely plans to stockpile the food. And then lo and behold, his very brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, they come marching down to Egypt because they need to buy some food. You guys know the story. I don't have to repeat all of it. But look what happens in verse 5 of chapter 45. Joseph has now revealed himself to his brothers, and they are panicking. And rightly so. They know they are guilty, and they know he has the power to execute them and would be fully justified in doing so. But Joseph sees God's hand in all of this. And notice how he speaks to his brothers. He says, now, do not be distressed. This is verse 5. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Notice he, he says, you did this. You sold me here. He doesn't whitewash it. He doesn't play it down. No, he calls it what it is. You sold me here. But why should they not be distressed by this? He says, But God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these last two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. You sold me, God sent me. You sold me is stated once. God sent me is stated three times. This is the doctrine of concurrence. They were acting according to their natural properties. These were sinful men who had bitterness and resentment and jealousy in their heart. And God did not coerce them and cause them to sin. They did exactly what they wanted to do. But this was ordained by God. This was God's purpose that Joseph would end up in Egypt. And God was ultimately also working. They were working, yes, So there's this current, this river, this stream that's flowing. And and these men of their own volition are acting, choosing to sin. But this is not outside the providential plan of God. God is also working with and in and through their sinful actions to bring about his desired ends. When theologians speak of concurrence, they talk about our working and God's working. They always talk about how that doesn't require that intent and purpose be the same. Joseph's brothers had one purpose, God had another, but their actions really blend perfectly together. And ultimately, here's what brings us so much comfort and confidence. God's purpose always wins out. God's intent is always the dominant purpose that comes to fruition. So that's why Joseph can say, you sold me, God sent me, God sent me. So we see this classically displayed in the story of Joseph, but I think we see it most powerfully really in In the life of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching and he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Again, Peter holds these people accountable for their sin. He says, You crucified him, you killed him. This was the actions of lawless men. And there's responsibility there, there's accountability there before God. But he says that the crucifixion of Jesus, the worst crime, the worst evil, the most grievous sin that has ever been committed, the murder of the Son of God, he says this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is concurrence. This is God sovereignly working with, in, and through his creation to bring about his appointed end 
for all things. Concurrence describes how God can ordain sin, yet not directly or effectively cause sin. God has never made anyone to sin. He does not coerce men. There are these natural properties. We saw this um, earlier in Exodus. When God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he wasn't taking a soft, humble man who really loved the Lord and wanted to you know, be a worshiper of Yahweh and, and forcing him to become something different. No, Pharaoh was already hard. And all God did was confirm him and sort of send him more speedily on his way in the direction he was already going. That's why we saw that Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then we see God hardened his heart. So concurrence describes how God can ordain sin, yet not directly or effectively cause sin. God is not the first cause. There's this idea of secondary causation, um, and, and concurrence helps us fit this together. Again, the Westminster Confession in, in chapter 5, the chapter on providence, says, Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. They're, they're agreeing, saying, yes, everything is according to God's sovereign plan. It says, yet, yet, by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Again, we need to keep this distinction in mind that, yes, God sovereignly ordains all things, but he uses secondary causes. And both parties may be acting. God is working and sinful man is working, but there can be different intent. All the while, both parties are fully involved, but God's purpose always prevails. It is God's will that is always ultimately determinative. This is the idea of concurrence, and there's more we could say about that. That's a new concept, a new idea. I would encourage you to do some further study. And again, what I'm presenting to you is really the classic Reformed view of sovereignty. This is the classic view of providence, and you'll find it um, as you study the Reformers. You'll find it as you study modern uh, theologians, and you'll find this in all of the standard systematic theology textbooks and in all the, 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 the preachers and the scholars and the pastors, the leaders the Spurgeons and the Calvins and the others that we love to, to read and benefit from. And, and if you're new to Reformed theology, if this idea of sovereignty and providence is new, and you're coming from a background where uh, free will and man's um, ability is really the emphasis, perhaps you've heard a view of sovereignty, a, a view of providence that's a little bit of a caricature uh, that describes this fatalistic, deterministic view where we're all robots and God is the one who just controls every decision and choice to the sense that there is no real meaningful freedom or responsibility or accountability. That's a straw man. Nobody's teaching that in terms of this is of classic Reformed theology. So what I'm presenting to you is, is not some new middle ground between Calvinism and Arminianism. This is not some new middle ground between sovereign God and, and free will. This is really the classic approach that Reformed um, uh, theology has always taught. So if it's new to you, I would encourage you to dive in. There's a lot of great material that is really helpful um, uh, regarding this. And I'm considering maybe adding in an extra lesson. I'm not sure if we're going to do that yet or not. An extra lesson to this series because I think it would do us well to probably dig deeper into some of these things and make sure we're understanding what Scripture teaches um, concerning uh, God's sovereignty, his providential control of all things, and how that intersects with, with man's responsibility and how man can be held accountable for choices like sin, 
or obedience or belief or rejection of Christ? How does all that work together? Again, there's more we could say, but not time this morning to say it. There's one more aspect of providence we need to cover, and that is governance. Governance. So we have preservation, concurrence, and governance. Governance is God's continual active rule over all things. Again, this would maybe be a word we could supply sovereignty here, is, is governance. It's his rule over all things so that through them he will accomplish his ultimate purpose of glorifying himself. Uh, that is God's purpose, and he governs all things according to that end. God has a purpose. He does not rule capriciously. He is not random. God doesn't do things just because he's moody and feels like it, or because it's a knee-jerk reaction, or because he just does the first thing that comes to his mind. No, he has a purpose, and he governs all things, controls them, rules over them to accomplish that purpose of glorifying himself. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says, Kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Um, we've mentioned here before that really one of the primary themes from cover to cover in Scripture is this idea of the kingdom of God, that God rules. He's the king of the universe, and he rules over his creation with sovereign power. This might be kind of small to read for you guys visually. I'll read it out loud for you. Um, we see this governance all over the place in Scripture. Just a few passages for your consideration would be Isaiah 46. Starting in verse 8, God says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Get this. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is a God of providence who governs his creation to bring about his intended ends. He says, I will accomplish all my purpose. And he has declared this purpose, according to verse 10 of Isaiah 46. He's declared this purpose from the beginning. Ephesians 1.11, Paul writes, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. If you need one verse to understand the providence of God, it's this. That God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And you can't somehow interpret all things to mean most things. It means all things. And all things according to the counsel of his will. God does not work out all things and some of them he's disappointed in. Because it wasn't what he hoped to accomplish. No, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is a great comfort to the believer. Romans 8, 28, familiar verse says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the beautiful thing, that this God who providentially governs his creation, his purpose is to bring himself glory, yes, but he does this in a way that brings good to his children. His glory and our good eternally guaranteed by his sovereign decree. That is something that is a bedrock for our faith. That's something that you can lay your head on at night as a pillow and rest in. This is God's governance of all things according to the counsel of his will. So providence is a necessary doctrine. It's necessary. Um, it's a necessary basis for predictive prophecy. If God is not sovereign, how can he say, here's what's going to happen and guarantee it's going to happen? 
And as we look in Scripture, we see countless fulfillment of prophecy, and that gives us comfort and courage because we know if God always kept his promises in the past, if predictive prophecy always came true, then we should rightly expect the things that haven't yet come to pass to also come true because we believe in a God who is sovereign. We believe in the providence of God. If you deny this doctrine, you have no real guarantee that what God said will still happen in the future is going to happen. If there's other forces outside of God that operate independently from God that he does not control, then we can't really have airtight confidence in the promises, in the prophecy of God. Um, This doctrine of providence is also the source of comfort for the suffering. You read the book of Job. Job never fully understands the reason for his suffering. But he does come to trust God, that God rules over the creation. And he must have a reason. And we can trust him. We know that God works everything together for good. We know that he loves us. We know that he's going to resurrect our broken and dying bodies one day and and glorify us. That's the final link in that golden chain in Romans. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. You see this whole flow of of redemptive work that God does, which which culminates in glorification. That's what God's going to do. That's such a comfort for those who suffer. And again, this doctrine of providence is the very ground of our salvation. And we'll talk about this more when we get to the doctrine of salvation. We're going to talk about how God's sovereignty is at work in every stage of our own salvation. From eternity past to eternity future and right in this moment, it is God's providence that ensures the salvation of his children. And there's many questions about that. We'll get to those um, other weeks when we talk about salvation. But the bottom line is this. We can trust And worship a God who sovereignly directs all things to their appointed end for his good purposes. This is the doctrine of providence. We see it broken down in three ways. Preservation, concurrence, and governance. And I would commend you to further study of that. So we have about three minutes. What about free will? I'm going to dip my toes in the water and not answer all your questions, but just give a brief response to this. What about free will? First of all, we need to define our terms. What does it mean to be free? People use these words in different ways. Uh, John Calvin himself admitted that he believed in free will in a sense. And he's the one who often gets sort of caricatured as this fatalist. Um, But Reformed theologians, um, I would argue those who interpret the Bible biblically, do affirm the freedom of man's will in a sense. But we are not free in an ultimate sense because only God is completely free. Only he is free from every external force. Only God is free from any limitation. So we are free in a sense. We make real choices, and those choices have real consequences, and we are accountable for them. We are not ever coerced in the sense that we're forced by some outside thing that makes us choose something that we don't want to choose. That that doesn't happen. Uh, So we're free in a sense, but our freedom is limited by our nature. For instance, I'm not free to fly home from church today by flapping my my arms. Why? Well, that's outside of my nature. I don't have wings. I'm limited by who and what I am. So we are limited in a sense. Uh, We're also limited by our nature in the sense that we're fallen. Uh, The doctrine of total depravity means that those who are apart from God are slaves to sin, blinded by sin, and unable to choose to love God and worship him and believe in Christ. And that's not because they're trying to love Jesus and follow him and God's stiff-arming them and saying, nope, you're not on the chosen list, so you don't get to. 
No, not, God never coerces anyone into rejecting him. That's the natural choice of fallen, depraved man. So we are free in the sense that we make real choices. We're not coerced. But we're not free in the sense that there's no limitation to what we can do. So R.C. Sproul has put it helpfully. He says, God is free, and I am free, but God is more free than I am. And my freedom can never limit God's freedom. That's really where the rub is. Our freedom and our will and our choices never puts a limit on God's freedom. You can't do that. If you do, we are God, and he's operating in our world where we make the rules. And that's backwards. We live in God's world, and we operate by his rules. And our freedom is limited by his freedom, the freedom of his will to ordain all things, whatsoever comes to pass, according to their appointed ends. And that even includes salvation and damnation. So the, again, the Westminster Confession is helpful. God from all eternity did by the most and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So God is completely free. Yet, so as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. God is not coercing his creatures to act contrary to their nature or to their will. Continues, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Um, a, a label you could put on this is, is, is this idea of divine compatibilism. That one's will is free within the boundaries of one's nature. Um, and so we really start to see as we understand this that it's really our sin and our fallenness that limits the will of man. Which means when we come to Christ and receive the gift of salvation, we are made free. We now have the ability to say no to sin and yes to God, which is this freedom that Christ calls us into. When we know the truth, the truth sets us free. We come to Christ and he makes us free. Free not in the sense that we are now on par with God to accomplish our will as, against, as over, over against his. No, but free in the sense that we are now able to do all the things we were originally designed to do, which includes loving, worshiping, and obeying God. So I might have raised more questions than I answered, but I felt like I had to at least dip my toes in it a little bit. Um, again, the idea of concurrence, this idea of, of com compatibilism is helpful here. God's will is ultimately determinative, yet the will of man is part of the process. It is part of the process. So um, if you have questions about that, let me know. I can direct you to some helpful resources and we may actually sneak in an extra lesson where we can expand these things more. Um, and many of your questions, I'm sure, will have to do with how this fits together with salvation. And we will talk about that more at length when we get to uh, our lesson on soteriology. So that is creation and providence. It's introductory. Again, all of these lessons are an introduction and really a summary of what the Bible teaches about it. But I hope that it's been helpful to you. You are dismissed. We'll see you back here in 15 minutes as we gather for worship.